Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about a fellow named Lee Loy. This bloke was, uh, he, was a Viet- he was a Vietnamese rebel leader. And he managed to overthrow Chinese rule in what we today call Northern Vietnam, all the way back in the in the 15, in the early fifteenth century. Now, and and even today, you know, six hundred years later after this bloke was kicking around, Li Loi is still a national hero in modern Vietnam, and for you know good bloody reason. Not only did he boot out the uh, the Chinese Ming Dynasty as part of his successful Lam Sun uprising, he also established a dynasty, the later Li Dynasty that would go on to rule Dai Viet, right, one of the precursors to modern Vietnam, until 1788. So, you know, he kicked off something pretty monumental here, and uh, at, at, to begin with at least, his rule began something of a golden age within Dai Viet. Uh, his immediate uh, immediate successors did very bloody well in running the country, and, you know, between him and, and the, the couple of uh, blokes that came after him, they instituted wide-range reform, modernization. they dealt with increasing contact from Europe. So literally... A pivotal figure in Vietnamese history, uh, clearly. But how did he get there? Born as the youngest son of a Vietnamese uh, landowner, he rose to become the leader of a nationalist movement that would topple Chinese colonial rule in northern Vietnam and then go on to become the monarch of the uh, the regime that he had installed. And it's, it's quite a story as to how he got there. I'm here to tell you today. But before we begin, of course, we've got to thank alert listener Travis W. Travis W. wrote in. I don't know if W is just Travis's last name. If if maybe, you know, they're at the Office of Births, Deaths and Marriages and, you know, Travis's parents are just like, ah, put the first letter in. That, that'll that'll do. I, I, you know, I've got places to be. I'm, I'm tired. I want to go home. Anyway, Trav, cheers very much, mate. Thanks for suggesting a bit of Vietnamese history. Uh, appreciate the suggestion. It was good fun to, to learn about Lee Loy. And uh, I, I want to mention two more things before we actually start. First thing... I wasn't able to get across a huge number of, of what felt like super reliable sources about this one. I did, you know, I, I was reading about Le Loy and, and his role in Vietnamese history, that sort of stuff, but there isn't the normal sort of amount of, of historical information available about this bloke than, than there typically would be for episodes. So I'm, I'm not, you know, my what's the what's the thing they say in science, a confidence interval or something? I don't know what it is. Anyway, I'm not particular. My, my confidence interval is... Either very big or very small, depending on what that actually means. Do you want a big interval of confidence or small? I think big. I want to be. I, I want to say that I want to be confident about this, but I'm not feeling super confident. As oh, not, not as confident as usual. Um, so if I get anything wrong, I apologise. I did. Uh, I did my best to uh, to get across this bloke's story, but there isn't just. There's just not a huge number of uh, readily available sources in English about him. Um, and the second thing here is, uh, I do want to offer a. Uh, an apology in advance to uh, Vietnamese-speaking listeners around the world. I mean, look, I'll do my best, but between Vietnam, uh, between Vietnamese being a, a tonal language and you know me being an anglophonic idiot, I don't imagine I'll do a good job pronouncing names and, and whatever else. So you know, I, I can't even include the the diacritics on um, on words like on names like Li Loi and Lam Son in, in in the episode title because the, you know it'll scramble the episode's distribution as, as different platforms they don't support those characters. You know. Learned that the hard way with Leo Major and, and Salomon Andre, episodes 18 to 32, get across them. But obviously, you know, you can see the, this entire thing has an enormous anglophonic bend. So I do apologise for that. Apologies to all the Vietnamese speakers out there. I'll do my best, but yeah, don't don't expect to get too many things right. Anyway, let's get to it here. Let's learn about Liloy. 
one of Vietnam's greatest heroes and what he did to lead Dai Viet out from under Chinese rule. Here we go. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the well. Hmm. Where are we going back to? Bloody hell. We could we how how far back do you want to start with this one? Vietnamese history spans thousands of years back in well back into ancient history before the common era. Um, and I actually I think I think that's where we'll start. We'll start BCE uh, to set the stage properly in 111 BCE in the in, in the northern part of what we today call Vietnam. It was conquered by the Chinese Han Dynasty, right? They're the northern neighbours there. Um, and it, outside of a few short periods, this part of the world remained under Chinese control until the 10th century when it became, when it became an independent nation or you know, potentially a tributary to China, depending on how you want to look at it. But uh, Chinese power at this point was significantly diminished at the time and various Vietnamese rulers, they emerged to fill this power vacuum left by the Chinese kind of pulling out, pulling their interests out of uh, out of uh, what we today call Vietnam to deal with the internal strife that was going on at this point. And so between the 10th and the 15th centuries, there are a number of different different dynasties that rose and fell in ruling what, what we call Dai Viet. It translates as Great Viet. Uh, it's the old name for the area that we today call Northern Vietnam. And uh, again, as I say, a very important precursor to the modern state of Vietnam. Anyway, Dai Viet was, uh, it was reasonably, reasonably proper prosperous it was uh, it was a, quite a stable realm there was an official government apparatus that oversaw you know very ordered and peaceful society although not one that was particularly welcoming of change or innovation or advancement it was uh, it was not the not the not the swiftest moving uh, society but uh, while Daiviet was ruled by a central king uh, the autonomous governing powers of individual villages was still quite considerable so it wasn't a hugely centralized realm and uh, you know, the king was, no, 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 I'm not going to say a figurehead or anything else like that, but more of an overseer rather than someone who had a very direct influence on the lives of people uh, in these individual communities. It was much more community-based, uh, community the, uh, you know, the governance and authority there. But still, king was an important figure and um, uh, oversaw, you know, a realm that was, as I say, relatively stable, relatively peaceful after it gained its independence. Although, you know, this stability, this peace in Daviet, it didn't last. Because as we approach the beginning of our story with Lil Loy in the mid to late 14th century, things aren't going too well in Daviet. There were all sorts of problems, right? But the biggest ones were caused by a decades-long period of drought. So this terrible drought that lasted, you know, 20 years or so, it led to food shortages, which then led to food prices skyrocketing, which led to widespread famine. And this led to, of course, bandits and, 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 and robbers going about terrorizing people for their food. Very bad situation. And to make things worse, huge amounts of political turmoil and upheaval as, uh, you know, as people sort of scramble to try to deal with this situation. There were coups, there was fighting, there were, you know, some brief civil wars, the throne was being seized and lost, and just, just a whole heap of blokes all just punching on trying to, uh, you know, trying to seize the throne and, uh, and do the best that they could to, to try to steer Doviet out of this, this bad situation. But that didn't go too well for the Vietnamese, because who's here to take advantage of, uh, you know, all of this instability? The Chinese Ming Dynasty, that's bloody who. They march into Dai Viet in 1406. They sense an opportunity to reconquer the lands that they'd lost all those centuries ago. And this invasion is swift, it is decisive. And in 1407, Dai Viet becomes Zhao Zhi, the, uh, the Zhao Zhi province, a colonial possession of the Ming Dynasty under the, the direct rule of Ming China. So the Ming, they waste no time 
in impressing their language, their culture, their customs, uh, all that on the Vietnamese. They undertook a campaign of cultural and historical erasure, all the, you know, all the classic moves you'd expect from, a, uh, from, from colonial overlords. However, they were met with significant resistance from the Vietnamese, uh, who turns out didn't really like being ruled by the Chinese. They'd had a gutful of it in the, in the centuries previous and weren't too keen to go back to it. And so there are uprisings and rebellions that start popping up all over the place. And it's one such uprising, the most important of, the, of, of them all, uh, that was led by our friend Liloy. Liloy was born on the 6th of August in 1385 in Lam Sun, which is uh, south of modern Hanoi. It's up in the north of uh, modern-day Vietnam. And as I mentioned, he was the youngest son of a wealthy landowner, a noble. So uh, his dad's name was Li Quang and was reasonably, reasonably well-to-do. Uh, I wasn't too. I wasn't able to find out too much about this bloke's younger days, but I do know that by the time we reach his early twenties, when the Ming invade, as I say, fourteen oh six, fourteen oh seven, he's in his early twenties. He jumps into action. He's ready to fight for his homeland. And as early as fourteen oh eight, Liloy was involved with these uprisings that I mentioned. The uprisings that were taking place against the Chinese, fighting the royal guard on behalf of the Tran Dynasty. The Tran Dynasty had previously ruled Dai Viet. They're seeking to reclaim the throne. And Liloy, he's out and about feeding the Chinese, the left and the right, absolutely giving them the business, uh, except the uprisings actually didn't go that well really at all. Both the Tran revolts were put down by the Chinese. And in 1413, Liloy was captured and he was imprisoned in his role for the fighting. Now, he was held in prison for two years, but escaped further punishment, quite luckily. I mean, the Trans that he was fighting for didn't do... They didn't do quite as well because they were executed, uh, but he did get away with it as this rebel, as a, you know, whatever the nomenclature you want to use, freedom fighter, whatever it is, uh, rebel insurgent, whatever. This bloke, uh, he got away with, um, he got away with the, uh, the the fact that he'd been involved in these uprisings. And, uh, you know, after avoiding this rather grisly fate, making sure he didn't get his head chopped off or anything else like that, he seemed to have calmed down, Liloy. He, uh, he, he left his rebellious tendencies behind him. And he got a, a job in government bureaucracy in the in the Chinese government uh, system, and that was that. I mean, obviously that wasn't that. It's not the end of the story. It would have been a pretty ordinary episode if that was it. Oh yeah, he fought in a couple of rebellions, was in prison, released, and decided never rebel again. You know, national hero. No, not quite. He worked away quietly for a couple of years until 1418, and in 1418 everything changed for Leloy. Now I'm not sure why. Again, I wasn't able to find out why. What the reason behind? this change was, but I can tell you what happened. In 1418, someone denounced Liloy to the Chinese, to the Ming Chinese colonial government as a traitor, right? They said this bloke is a rebel, he's a spy, he's a, he, you know, he's a, he's a turncoat, whatever he is. I, again, I, I actually don't know the details on it, but someone dobbed him in as a traitor. The Ming believed it. I mean, look, he's got a track record. I guess that's fair enough. They believed the accusations. They came out to Liloy and Again, this is the way the story goes. I'm not 100% sure on this one, but apparently they took away his nine-year-old daughter to be a concubine for the Ming Emperor Zhu Di. And as you can imagine, this was more than enough reason to turn Liloy into a traitor and a rebel if he wasn't one beforehand. And so in February 1418, after this stoush with the Ming, he went into an open rebellion against the Chinese colonial overlords. He gave himself a new name. He called himself Bin Din Huang, which translates as the Prince of Pacification, which is quite a name to give yourself. And he got stuck in with both bloody hands, mate. Let me tell you, he swore an oath alongside a bunch of his most uh, trusted associates, the people who you know, go on to become his generals as this uprising took off. He swore an oath to deliver the Vietnamese people from the, uh, the tyranny of the Chinese colonial overlords. 
and uh, as I say, went into open rebellion against the Ming. And, I mean, thousands of people immediately flocked to his banner. There were so many people, so many Vietnamese who were just absolutely up to the back teeth of the Chinese, and they decided that they wanted to uh, to, to join this rebellious cause. And uh, and so they, they you know, flocked to the side of, of Li Loi. And so he began his campaign in earnest on behalf of the Tran dynasty. The Tran dynasty had ruled Daviet up until 1400. Uh, and on top of that, the two Tran blokes that Li Loi had fought for previously before he was imprisoned, uh, they had been executed, as I say, and, and it actually turned them into martyrs, which had inspired others to join the cause and others to fight for you know this, this old line of, of Vietnamese monarchs. And so Li Loi, he had no shortage of followers. The Lam Sun uprising was born, uh, so named because of obviously where it originated in Li Loi's home of Lam Sun. But they did have a stiff fight ahead of them. Even after the uprising began and even after all these people flocked to the side of Liloy, the Chinese had several advantages. And, you know, two of the most important advantages they had were a numerical advantage and a technological advantage. Specifically, uh, technologically speaking, the Chinese had access to quite sophisticated, for the time, gunpowder weapons. Episode 115, get across it. While the Vietnamese only had a handful of gunpowder weapons they'd captured or they'd built themselves as copies. And obviously, you know, the Chinese got a bit of a head start on, on the rest of the world when, when with dealing with gunpowder, as we've talked about in the podcast before. And so their weapons really were state-of-the-art. So the Vietnamese, you know, they, they are fighting from a, a sort of diminished position immediately. However, they did have some advantages of their own. They were fighting for their, you know, they were fighting for their freedom, for their homeland. Uh, and you can, you know, you never really underestimate the impact that that sort of thing has on the uh, of, on the morale of a fighting force. Uh, and in, in addition to that, they had unmatched knowledge of the land for which they were fighting, that home ground advantage. And Lilo took advantage of this by beginning a guerrilla campaign against the Ming Dynasty in an effort to restore a Tran figurehead to the throne. Now, between 1418 and 1420, Liloy's forces, they worked to ambush or surprise Ming uh, patrols. They couldn't really meet them in a, you know, in a pitched battle because of, the, again, you know, the numerical and, and technological inferiority that they had. But these surprise attacks, these ambushes, uh, they led to the rebel, uh, rebel force becoming stronger and, uh, and better equipped. They would seize the weapons, other military hardware, take prisoners and, and generally diminish the impact of or the, you know, the presence of the Chinese. And it, but in addition to these attacks, in addition to you know winnowing, winnowing down the strength of the Chinese and nicking their guns, Liloy also worked to expand the rebel sphere of influence uh, from a territorial perspective, capturing Chinese outposts and, and stuff like that. Although apparently it was a rather grisly affair whenever this happened, because Liloy executed his enemies by the hundreds. I mean, bit much there, Liloy mate. Chill out. Maybe just maybe just keep him prisoner. I don't know, but anyway, that's what he did. Um, but up until 1421 or maybe 1422, things went pretty well for the Lam Sun uh, uprising. It, it, it slowly but surely took territory back from the Ming Chinese, and the number of rebels fighting for independence only grew and grew. As I say, it was not a hard sell to get most of the Vietnamese population on, la- on, on side. Didn't uh, didn't take too much to tip them over the edge to make them, you know, want to become rebels as well. And so Liloy is doing very, very well. And uh, as the number of rebels grew and, you know, as the territory that they controlled expanded, it looked like things were going very well until, as I say, 1421, 1422, and then it all came a gutsa, of course. It was then that the Chinese finally decided to take the issue in hand. They, you know, they still had this, they still had numer- numerical superiority. They still had better weapons. And so they organized it at, at last. They organized a proper march on the rebel-held areas. As much as the rebel ranks had grown, the Chinese had 
87,000 or so troops uh, in, in this part of the world and in, in, in this, uh, you know, colonial possession of theirs. And so, you know, ferociously outnumbered the Vietnamese rebels. And of course, once they decided to march on the rebel strongholds the, and, and the areas, the territories that had been taken by Li Loy and his men, it only got worse from there. Because the story goes that the Chinese forces were, you know, as, as they were marching on Li Loy and, 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 and his men, an army of 30,000 Laotian soldiers, right, complete with 100 elephants, also approached. And Liloy's going, oh, bloody great. Here we go. We've got, we got, we got the neighbours from across the way. They've come over to give the Chinese a damn good hiding with us. But no, no, the Laotians didn't side with him and the Vietnamese. The, they joined forces with the Chinese instead. And Liloy and his men were crushed. They were absolutely annihilated. By 1423, Liloy was running ragged. He had tens of thousands of Chinese and Laotian uh, soldiers chasing around here, there and everywhere. The Ming Chinese essentially had handed him his ass on a silver platter. He'd been chased back all the way to Lam Sun. The rebels, they've, they've lost the territory they controlled. They've lost a lot of the, the momentum that they had. And uh, the rebellion, honestly, at this point, it looks to be over. Liloy, he sued for peace. He sought, a, he sought a peace agreement. He had to pay the Chinese off. He had to give them lavish gifts of gold and silver in order, order for them to stop their attacks. He had to essentially buy peace for himself and his men. And so the Lam Sun uprising was unsuccessful. Liloy was defeated and all seemed lost. But, I mean, let's not forget, National Hero delivered the Vietnamese from the Chinese Dominion. So, obviously, the story can't end here. We continue. There's a bit of a fight left in Leloy. He's not happy with the way that this has ended. And while he might be down, he's not out. Even after the re rebellion was put down like this, Leloy didn't give up. And uh, he was the beneficiary of a bit of good luck in 1424. The Ming Emperor, Zhu Di, died, right? And he was succeeded by his son, Zhu Gaoji. And Zhu Gaoji had a very different view of things compared to his old man. Zhukaji was interested in consolidation, not expansion, and he undertook a range of decisions that quite significantly changed, you know, how things were for the Vietnamese. Uh, for example, he curtailed the aggression of his generals. He, you know, didn't let them go off hunting down rebels here, there, and everywhere. He pulled back on the military presence within Zhaoji province. He wasn't as interested in, uh, you know, ruling the region with an iron fist and, and and to that end also he he scaled back taxation quite significantly the taxation that had been levied on the vietnamese was uh, was was diminished and so the economic and the military impacts of chinese occupation uh, you know throughout those chinese occupied areas was was lessened hugely and liloy he decided well Bloody hell! I'm going to make make hay while the sun shines here. We, you know, it's an absolute freebie for me. We've got this new emperor doesn't doesn't seem to care too much about what's going on down here, and you know, I'm going to leap straight back into it. That's that's just what he did. He, he got the band back together. He took the fight to the Chinese once again. But instead of going after the the higher concentrations of Chinese troops, the ones that had been left there as garrisons, whatever else, Liloy took advantage of the fact that the you know the Chinese resources, military the military resources in particular, were spread very thin, and instead he decided to march south and take control of the outlying areas, uh, you know, outside of the, the Vietnamese heartlands around the, the Red River Delta. And he, he, he went on a great campaign of recruitment. And people were more than happy to join up. I'm sure Leloy was, you know, an inspiring and uplifting figure. I'm sure that he put in a lot of, lot of hard yakka to become a, a beacon of hope against the occupation of the invaders. But to be honest, he 
probably didn't have to work very hard to go down and say, oh, you blokes want to fight against the Chinese? Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, you know, sign of the dotted line. Off we go. Most Vietnamese people were more than happy to resist the Ming Chinese however they could. And so by 1425, the Lamsung, uh, the Lamsung uprising, it is, it is kicking goals with both feet once again. They are well and truly back up in it. And they get another windfall. Uh, that year in 1425, because uh, Zhu Gaoji, this guy who had pulled back enormously on you know his colonial interest in 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 the Vietnamese, he died unexpectedly, just killed over, died of a heart attack. He's just 46 years old, and uh, his son Zhu Zhanji, right, largely followed in his old man's unambitious footsteps. He saw the Zhaji province as too remote and too insignificant to commit vast resources to defending. And this worked out great for Liloy, who continued to sweep around both the north and the south, scoring victories over the Chinese, capturing supplies and weapons and even ships, building up his forces, building up the, the size of, of the military commanded and the equipment that they were using here. So by the end of 1425, Liloy was having that much success as a rebel leader that Zhu Zhanji he started to think about whether it, were, whether it was even worth trying to hold on to this colonial possession down south because he's thinking, well, bloody hell, we're going to lose it. I'm busy. I've got paintings to do. He's quite a talented painter, actually. You can go online and see the, the paintings that Zhu Zhanji did, even as emperor. Some of the... He was... Uh, look, he was... I'll, I'll put it this way. He was a lot better at painting than he was at putting down Vietnamese rebellions. I'll say that. Anyway, so, look, he's got enough going on, you know, given the instability that comes with leadership change, uh, particularly with, you know, two emperors dying in as many years... So he floats the idea of putting a Tran ruler back on the throne as a tributary to the Ming dynasty and therefore be done with all the fighting. Just get some bloke who there's going to maybe some Chinese uh, sympathies and, you know, they can just let well well enough alone. I don't know how much this, I mean, how much traction this idea got within, you know, Zhu Zhenji's actual court, uh, but ultimately it was irrelevant. You know, I just... I wanted to highlight that he was thinking this to, to point out the fact that he's already in a mindset where he's like, geez, I, I, maybe I want to leave this one alone. But that actually didn't matter from Liloy's perspective because Liloy is going around and he's, he's cracking heads as as you'd expect him to be, you know, as you'd expect him to be doing. Into 1426, Liloy, he's pursuing retreating Chinese forces as far north as he can chase them, all the way up towards the Red River Delta uh, in the north of, uh, of modern-day Vietnam. And uh, look, you know, perhaps a bit unusually for this podcast, it only got better from there. As Liloy successfully proclaimed a bloke named Tran Cao as king. The fight for an independent Dai Viet was far from over, but that didn't stop him from proclaiming the return of the Tran dynasty, sort of getting the jump on Zhu Zhanji, who had been hoping to, you know, maybe install a, a figurehead of his own. Well, Liloy says, no, no, mate, well, I'm, I'm going I'm to steal a march and you're going to pull the rug right out from under you and put my own Tran on the throne, which is a huge boon to the Lamsun uprising, a, uh, you know, an enormous shot in the arm for them in terms of morale and, and even just legitimacy, the fact that they'd managed to, uh, to, to crown their own king here. And look, while the fighting is, is going very well for the Lamsun uprising, uh, there is still a lot of work left to be done here to secure independence, proper independence from the Chinese. And so the fighting continued throughout 1426. But again, broadly speaking, it went pretty well for Liloy and his men. Zhu Zhanji is dealing with other stuff at home in China. Uh, I don't know if this happened at the same time as the Lamsun uprising, uh, but at one point Zhu Zhanji uh, had to, I say had to, chose to, torture and execute his own uncle and all of his uncle's sons because his uncle was rude to him and did something like trip him over. So clearly 
Zhu Zhenji has got his hands full. He's, you know, torturing and killing rude relatives. Never mind, there's a colonial possession in open rebellion proclaiming a new king. I've, I'm much more interested in, you know, burning my uncle alive. Anyway, the most important battle of, uh, of 1426 was the Battle of Tot Dong. And this saw 6,000 Vietnamese troops ambushed somewhere between, are you ready for this? 50 and 100,000 Chinese soldiers. Vietnamese sources claim it's 100,000. Chinese sources claim it's 50,000. The truth is somewhere probably in the middle. But this battle took place in December, and it was an absolute disaster for the Chinese because they were tricked into taking a shortcut, uh, shortcut across a river, right, when the 6,000 Vietnamese guerrilla troops attacked, and tens of thousands of Chinese soldiers died during this ambush, either killed in the fighting or, you know, they were drowned as they attempted to flee. But this overwhelming victory against vastly superior numbers was just massive for the Lamson uprising. And on top of those deaths, Lilo's forces were able to seize the weapons and the supplies from the defeated Chinese as they were, you know, as they'd been marching about. Um, and of, of particular note, part of the booty they seized from, you know, the, the, the spoils of war here that they managed to get for themselves were a whole lot of state-of-the-art gunpowder weapons. And this enormous arsenal was expanded further as we move into 1427, when prisoners of the Lamson Uprising were given the chance to aid the war effort by sharing their technological expertise. In this way, Lilo's forces not only had scores of, of gunpowder weapons and, and you know, were trained how to use them properly, but also were instructed how to build trebuchets and very basic tanks. And these heavy weapons, you know, these siege weapons, were used to assault the fortifications that were held by the Chinese, seizing, seizing further control of the Red River Delta. So now, in 1427, Liloy's position is a terrific one. He's recaptured most of the land that used to be governed by the Daibiet. He's got this bloke Tran Cao on the throne. The Chinese are running scared. It looks like this rebellion is going to be a successful one. But then, in March 1427, old mate Zhu Zhangji, he decides enough is enough. It's time to deal with his pitiful rebel scum. Although he, you know... Probably wasn't as confident as that, to be honest, because the Chinese have been getting their asses kicked up and down, uh, up and down the Red River so far. Anyway, he sent in no fewer than one hundred thousand troops. He moved a hundred thousand troops uh, south, perhaps as many as one hundred twenty thousand, to try to crush this rebellion. And uh, well, I mean, look, not to put too fine a point on it, they didn't. The Battle of Chilang was brief. It was decisive. 90,000 of the Chinese troops that have been sent uh, south marched to relieve some of the uh, the bedraggled uh, Chinese garrisons, but instead ran into a Vietnamese force in the mountainous Chilang Pass. And here, the Vietnamese used a bit of trickery to lure the Chinese to their doom, thanks to their knowledge of the local terrain. The, the Vietnamese, they formed up for battle and then immediately routed and broke and fled. And so the Chinese go, oh, easiest battle of our lives. Off, off we go, pop on the horseback and let's, uh, you know, let's chase them down the mountain here, which is exactly what the Vietnamese wanted them to do uh, because the Vietnamese led them straight into the marshy, boggy, sticky, swampy ground at the base of the mountains where all their horses became stuck. And it was an absolute massacre. Tens of thousands of Chinese soldiers were killed and tens of thousands more were taken prisoner. And to top it all off, rather more literally than you might have expected here, the Chinese commander, a bloke whose name was Liu Sheng, he had his head chopped off during the fighting. And that was that. The Ming essentially abandoned any hope that they had at holding on to Dai Viet in the wake of this defeat. 
And throughout the rest of uh, throughout the rest of 1427, Li Loy and his forces, just a clean-up job for them. They uh, cleaned up the remaining Chinese presence in Daiviet, confiscated all the Chinese weapons, and uh, booted them all out of the country back up north, released the prisoners that, that had, you know, actually survived. And around 80 or 90,000 prisoners uh, that were released made their way back up north, uh, limping, licking their wounds uh, back up north towards China. And that was that. By the end of the year, the Lamsun Uprising was over and was a total success. The Ming Chinese had been, they'd been sent packing, the Vietnamese had retaken their homeland, and the war was over. And Zhu Zhenji, you know, I don't know, went back to painting, I guess, instead of attempting to main con- main con- maintain control of his colonial possessions. As I say, you know, quite a talented painter. Go and have a look at, go and have a look at some of his stuff. It's very good. Anyway, the Chinese hold on Vietnamese lands had effectively come to an end. However... There is one one final development we need to talk about with Li Loy because you'll remember that I mentioned that he became ultimately, you know, the king. He became the monarch, king, emperor, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but he's got this bloke Tran Cao on the throne that he himself had put there as this figurehead to to rally people uh, to to the rebellion. So Li Loy seems to have decided somewhere along the line that he and not Tran Cao would be a better king. And, you know, this again, one of those things that I wasn't properly able to verify, but from what I found out, it seems that Li Loy ordered Tran Cao to commit suicide. He forced him to drink poison so Li Loy could take the throne for himself. Got a bit dark there, Li Loy old mate, but, you know, hey, he's a national hero. He's delivered the Vietnamese from their opponents, and so the throne was his. Poor old bloody Tran Cao, though. Anyway... In 1428, Liloy pronounced the Dai Viet officially independent. He proclaimed himself king and, it has to be said, he transitioned from a revolutionary guerrilla leader to an effective and successful government leader essentially straight away. He renamed the Vietnamese capital Dong Kin, which uh, in time became known as Tonkin, which is where we get the name of the Gulf of Tonkin. And after years of war, one of the first things Liloy did was renew Dai Viet's infrastructure. He built roads and canals and bridges. And he also spent some time uh, working on reforming the government. He awarded high positions to those who had fought with him during the rebellion. Although, you know, I have to mention he did also purge some that he didn't seem to trust anymore. Uh, He reformed the criminal code. He heavily penalized bribery and corruption and gambling too, for some reason. But perhaps most significantly... It was his policy on land reform that really changed the way that Dai Viet worked and and looked also. He encouraged people to resettle uh, and expand into new lands with land grants given to, again, those who had fought in the rebellion. He confiscated lands off anyone who had had Ming sympathies, gave them to people loyal to him, and also, as I say, encouraged people to expand and, uh, and, and settle new lands that, had, that hadn't been uh, you know, put to, to agricultural use just yet. And in this way... Leloy, by encouraging people to move into you know sparsely popu- populated areas and plant these crops, it massively increased the Daiviet's uh, food production, right? And this further bolstered the Vietnamese population, helped it grow, and may have helped them be in a state of readiness for you know the sorts of droughts and food sh- shortages that led to the whole political instability that allowed the Chinese to invade back in 1407. So he was very sensible in, in putting down some safeguards to make sure that this, a, a similar situation wouldn't arise again. Speaking of China, by the way, Liloy also normalized relations with, uh, with the Ming Chinese, rather prudently paying Zhu Zhanji and the Ming Dynasty tribute, while Dai Viet was... It was independent, effectively. In, in every sort of logistical and, and, and pragmatic sense, it, it was independent. 
but they didn't want to play with fire. So they paid off the Chinese. Uh, it was probably the best way for them to retain their newfound independence uh, for the long term, which is exactly what they did. Dai Viet remained functionally and effectively independent for a very, very long time under the later Li dynasty. Uh, the later Li dynasty as opposed to the brief early Li dynasty of the, the late 10th century. The later Li dynasty ruled Dai Viet from 1428 until 1527, then had a brief break, a little, little intermission for a couple of years, was restored to power in 1533, and then ruled until 1788. Lilo himself ruled until his uh, rather unexpectedly premature death, actually, in 1431. He didn't stick around for as long as you might have uh, you might have thought. But in his wake, there was you know there was there was a usual power struggle amongst various heirs and pretenders and usurpers that you might expect. But they all did a pretty good job for the most part, and the Lee dynasty kicked off a what is broadly considered by most historians to be a golden era in Vietnamese history. Uh, and over the centuries, the borders of Dai Viet expanded almost to the point of matching the modern borders of today's Vietnam. In time, the Lee monarchs became less politically powerful and more like figureheads. However, the Lee dynasty nonetheless endured all the way through everything until 1788, when it was finally overthrown by the Tay Son dynasty, which in turn was overthrown by the Nguyen dynasty in 1802, and the Nguyen dynasty unified the nation that we today recognize and uh, officially changed its name to, of course, Vietnam. But all this was only possible thanks to Li Loi, the man who took the fight to the Chinese colonial invaders, turfed them out of Vietnamese lands, and reclaimed the independence of Dai Viet. And with that in mind, there's little wonder that he's considered even today a national hero of Vietnam. He is in many ways responsible for its existence as an independent nation in the modern era. But perhaps the most famous story about Liloy is also the one that simply isn't true. The story, my friends, of his magical sword. I had to have a good old think about whether I was even going to include this in the podcast because, you know, while we love a good story here at Half Hour History, it's nice when they are at least remotely believable. However, the mythology, the, the legends that follow Liloy around are, are probably too important to this bloke's overall story to leave out of the show. So, you know, whatever, bugger it. Here's the story of Liloy and his magical sword, Than Thuyen, which translates as Heaven's Will. One day, there's this bloke, he's a fisherman, and he's out on a lake and he chucks his net out into the, uh, into the lake and, uh, and pulls it up and, oh, bloody hell, no fish, but what's this? Long, long, thin, bloody strip of metal? Oh, I don't want this. The fisherman gets the, the metal, hoiks it back into the lake, and off he goes, uh, you know, to continue fishing. Chucks his net out there again, uh, pulls it up. Oh, what's this? Still no bloody fish, but there's this bloody piece of metal. I thought I chucked it back into like, don't want this one again. And then because these things always have to have, have, you know, they just have to happen three times before anything takes place in any fairy tale of any kind. A third time, he chucks his net out, doesn't catch any fish, catches this metal thing. But uh, he realizes, right, uh, the th- uh, you know, after, after bringing it up the third time, some, for some reason, first and second, he didn't notice this. The fisherman, the third time he brought it up, he noticed, he, he, he only then examined it properly under, under his lamp, and he realized, he noticed that it was a blade of a sword. Can you believe it? Right? I don't know why it didn't cut the net. I guess it wasn't that sharp. Anyway, he took the blade home, right, put it in the corner of his house and just kind of forgot about it. Anyway, a couple of years pass, right, and this guy, this fisherman, he joins the rebel army under Liloy. And what's this? One day, Liloy himself, the great general, the leader of the Lam Sun Uprising, came to visit him at his humble home, right? Came and, and visited him 
Um, uh, so, you know, this the fisherman's going around, he's making sure everything's tidy up. Oh, yep, get that bloody bit of metal that I found in the lake that I've kept for all these years for no reason. Sure, pop that over there, no worries at all. Anyway, when Liloy walked in to the fisherman's house, almost as if the blade of the sword sensed his presence, it began to glow. It began to radiate a, a light and, uh, and you know, Lee Loy looked at this, the, the blade of this sword and he saw written on its side two words that came into vision before his very eyes. It said, Thuan Thien, the will of heaven. And so Lee Loy goes, oh, bloody hell, nice... It's a nice bit of mach- nice bit of metalwork you got there. I might take that with me. And the fisherman goes, "Absolutely, mate. No worries at all." Just, just gave it to him. You know, this treasure that lit up when. I mean, I guess he's your boss, right? If you're a rebel and you're fighting for him, and he wants something, you give it to him. You want to keep on on, on the in the boss's good side. Anyway, Leloy he takes this blade with him. I don't know how he carried it or you know handled it. Don't know if he just put it in his backpack or maybe he had a scabbard. But then he wouldn't have been a player because it didn't have a it didn't have a. Um, a handle, so maybe a pair of tweezers that he could like, or a pair of pliers that he could pull it in and out of the scabbard. I don't know. The, the the legend doesn't deal with any of this. It just says that he picked it up and took it out, maybe had a pair of gloves on while he handled I don't know. Anyway, the story continues. One day, Liloy was fleeing from uh, the Chinese enemy after a battle that had gone gone poorly, and you'll never guess what he saw. Once again, a strange light emanating, right? This time from the top of a bloody tree. He's running along and under a banyan tree, sees this light filtering down through the branches. And he goes, oh, what's this? Never mind, he's on the run from the Chinese. He stops, he climbs up the tree and you'll never guess what he found. He found the hilt of a sword encrusted with precious gems and jewels. And he goes, hang on one second. This is this is this is not even the first time I've found a piece of uh, you know a piece of weaponry a piece of hardware like this that's been glowing strangely. I wonder if it's got anything to do with that uh, that blade that I found at the fisherman's place. And sure enough, right, he took the blade out. I don't know if he was carrying the blade with him when he's on the run from the Chinese after this battle, but at some point he got the pliers out, pulled it out of the uh, out of the scabbard without cutting his hand, and you'll never guess what happened. He fitted the blade of the sword to the hilt and. It was a perfect fit. I know, you're all shocked. You've fallen off your chair in excitement and surprise at, at, at such a development. Anyway, this magical sword that apparently, you know, glowed in the dark and and, and whatever else, uh, it, it rallied people to his side, as a magic sword would, I guess. You know, if you were the leader of a, a, of a resistance movement and you had a sword that had heaven's will written on the side of it and, and it glowed, yeah, I guess people would probably be like, all right, well, I'm going to side with the bloke who's got the magic sword. And apparently, Heaven's Will just w- was the reason that Leloy had all these victories, you know. Uh, they the, the, the rebels didn't have to hide in the forests anymore. They could just charge straight into uh, into battle, into camps and outposts and seize them and uh, take people prisoner. I mean, Leloy seemed to like to kill a lot of his prisoners as well, so maybe the magic sword helped there as well. Anyway, the sword apparently was was, you know, Foundationally important to the success of Liloy and his his campaign against the Chinese, and uh, obviously put him on the throne in fourteen twenty eight. It was all thanks to this magic sword, and uh, you know the the Vietnamese people have been delivered not just by Liloy but also by Heaven's Will, this magic glowing sword. But one day, oh no, sorry, I didn't tell you the best thing about the sword. Apparently, when he wielded it, he grew to like several. He grew like magically grew to like a giant several times the size of a normal man and um, it also made him like a lot stronger as well so it wasn't just magic like it didn't have just glowy powers it also had like growy powers too i guess anyway 
Um, after he'd taken the throne, uh, one day uh, he's out. Um, he was out boating on a lake, right in in the modern the modern day town of Hanoi. Um, and he was he's cruising. Obviously, he's got his sword with him. Obviously, you take your sword when you're off boating on a, on a little pleasure cruise along the uh, along the lake here. Anyway, then a golden turtle whose name is Kim Kui uh, surfaced from the lake and said, "G'day, Lee Loy. How you going, mate? What's going on?" Listen, that sword you've got, obviously now you've you know gained independence for 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 Dai Viet and you you got no more you know no more battles left to fight. So if we can have that sword back, that wouldn't be uh, that that'd be great. My my boss, whose name is Long Vuong, which translates as Dragon King, uh, he lives down the bottom of this lake and he's he's keen to have that sword returned to him if that's all right. And so Liloy realized, ah, this sword had just come to me in order for me to deal, to, to you know, fulfill my quest of, uh, of of throwing off the Chinese oppressors and, and establishing once again a you know a free and independent Dai Viet. Uh, I don't need this sword anymore. I will I will divest myself of it, uh, lest it corrupt me with its power. And so he pulled the sword out and chucked it at the turtle. I mean, to, I guess probably chucked it to the turtle would be a better way of saying it. Uh, and the turtle apparently uh, opened its mouth, thrust out its neck, and caught the sword in its mouth, which is quite a trick. I would very much like to see a turtle catch a sword in its mouth. Anyway, the golden turtle then descended back into the water, shiny sword, obviously, you know, clutched between its choppers, and that was that. The magic sword was never seen again. However, to return us to the real, actual world and away from the, the realm of myth and legend and fairy tale, if you visit Hanoi today in the 21st century, in modern-day Vietnam, you will find the lake upon which this fairy tale is, you know, said to have happened. And uh, the, the name of this lake is Huan Kiem Lake, named by Li Loi himself, and for very good reason, because Huan Kiem Lake means, in English, the Lake of the Returned Sword. It's a very real thing in the middle of this huge city in Vietnam, although... I'm not sure if the Golden Turtle or indeed the Dragon King still live there. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Liloy and the Lamb Sun Uprising. And I want to tra- thank Travis W. once again for uh, the suggestion. Great to get across a bit of Vietnamese history today. So I do hope you enjoyed it half as much as I enjoyed uh, providing it for you. All the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way right now. Um, goodbye. Goodbye to all the people who skipped this and don't listen to it. Goodbye. All right. We've just got the real fancy now. What's up, everyone? Hello. Uh, Halfhousehistory.net. Contact form there. Old episodes. Anchor.fm. Subscribe. Merch shop. Patreon. Thanks very much. Uh, early access. Show notes. Behind the scenes stuff. Blah, blah, blah. You've heard it a thousand times. I still want to thank you for listening to all the boring housekeeping stuff. Um, uh, I am aware of an issue, actually. I want to briefly talk about this. Uh, an issue with Google Podcasts. I am completely and utterly unable to convince Google Podcasts that I am the owner of this podcast and I cannot take possession of the RSS feed that is fed to the Google Podcast machine. I don't know how it works, but basically I can't fix it. I don't know what I've been trying for ages. I cannot I cannot convince Google that I own this podcast. And so if you use Google Podcasts, there may be issues with the feed. I do apologize about that. I just If anyone has any idea how to fix that sort of thing, please let me know. But uh, otherwise, I would suggest just use, you know, any any number of other podcast providers where you'll get uh, Half Us History every week, every week without any issues whatsoever. Anyway, 
Um, once again, of course, a special thank you to all the Patreons, uh, the ones keeping the lights on here at Half Past History HQ. And thank you to all the freeloaders as well who are listening because, hey, got to get those numbers up. And those numbers, I have to say, they are going up. So I do appreciate the people who are out there telling uh, telling their mates, telling their enemies, telling everyone in between uh, about Half Past History. Uh, appreciate it very, very much indeed. So uh, thanks for being part of, the, uh, part of the family of this dumb podcast. But that's it. Closing out as ever with a question posed on Reddit. We've talked a lot about, uh, you know, the guerrilla warfare involved in uh, uh, in Liloy's uprising and uh, and the Lam Sun uh, uprising, the, the rebellion against the Chinese. And Liloy obviously using his and his men's expertise and knowledge of the local terrain to his favour in undertaking this campaign of guerrilla warfare against the Ming Chinese. But it does lead us to wonder, as asked by Mr. Somalian Cinema, who supplied all the guerrillas with weapons in Vietnam.